0: Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we do pray that you teach us today, Lord, that we would be humble people, Lord, not trusting in our own righteousness, Lord, not exalting ourselves, Lord, being puffed up with vanity and pride, but that, Lord, we would be like this tax collector who could not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast because of the awareness of his own sinfulness, Lord, and how undeserving he was to stand before you. Lord, teach us this way, Lord, that we might be humble, that we might not be opposed by you, Lord. that in due time you might lift us up. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the parable before us today is a very helpful parable because it teaches us that it's not enough for us to go through the routines, through the outward actions that are associated with worship, if those outward actions are not accompanied with the proper internal Attitude toward God right Uh, there are things that we must do things that we've even done today. We've sang songs We've prayed we've read scripture together. We've done all these things now We're hearing the preaching of God's word all of these things are necessary for us to worship God All these things need to be done by the righteous in order to fulfill our duty to God to give to him proper worship But simply going through these activities is not enough if those activities are not accompanied with an internal heart, but an internal attitude of humility toward God, if we approach God with vanity and with pride, with contempt of others, with presumption, then even if we're doing the right things, even if we're praying to the true God, it is worthless. It is of no good and of no count at all. Right? If we pray with presumption and pride, Thinking that God owes us his blessings and owes us his mercies because of what we have done, then God will not hear us. So we have here in this parable two men who both offer prayers to the true God. One's not praying to a false God and the other one to the true God. Both are praying to the true God, but only one is accepted and the other one is rejected by God. So it is not enough that we pray. It is not enough that we even pray to the true God. We must pray to the true God in the proper way, in a true and proper way that is laid out for us in the scriptures. We must approach God with humility in order for God to hear us. Proverbs 15 verse 8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The sacrifice of the wicked, the prayer of the wicked, the prayer of the man with pride is an abomination to God. But the upright, the humble man, he is accepted by God. Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ear toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Here we must see that there are two paths. Even when we approach God in worship, two paths. And we want to make sure that we are walking in the straight ways of the Lord. Look again with me at verse 9. He says there, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here, he tells us at the very beginning the purpose of the parable. Why it is it Jesus has given this parable. Through the parable, he intends to teach and to show how monstrous and hideous are pride and presumption. Right here is a clear display of two men. One who is accepted by God and who... We ought to emulate the other one who is rejected by God, and we ought to avoid what this man does. Now, this leaves us without any excuse. Right? Who can say that they did not know that pride was a sin? Who can say that they did not know that presumption and self-righteousness were things that God abhorsed, Right? Who can say that they do not know that God looks toward those who are humble and contrite and lowly in spirit? The Bible repeatedly teaches... From cover to cover, that God hates pride. He hates pride in men. And that he will destroy and bring to nothing those who are filled with pride. The Bible repeatedly teaches us as well, from cover to cover, that God loves humility in men. And that he will raise the humble, he will raise them up out of the dust, and he will grant to them his blessings, his salvation. There's no room for boasting in the Christian life no room for self-exaltation and no excuse for it. This is so clearly taught in the Bible that we cannot claim ignorance and those who persist in these types of sins will be brought to nothing. God will destroy them on the day of judgment. No one can claim ignorance. They cannot say they did not know better. It is so clearly taught. And here, we have it taught through a vivid example. An example in both, an admonition. We have both that is laid out at the end and an example that is given to us so we have it confirmed to us in two ways. Yet even though this is the case, even though the Bible so clearly teaches us that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, we find universally that man is often filled with pride. We find it to be the case that man is prone to pride, to a trusting in his own righteousness and to treating his fellow man with contempt. The disease of pride was so common in men, it is so hard to expel from men, that in Jesus' day, even among the Jewish people, those who possess the true word of God, those who possess the true knowledge of God, yet hardly one in ten thousand could be found who was not filled with pride, with presumption, with self-righteousness, and with contempt. And so it is in our own day as well. Wicked pride. So feels the heart of men that barely one in a million can be found in our own day who possess true humility. It is easy to find those who are like a Pharisee, but it is very rare, very rare indeed, even among the church, to find those like the tax collector. And wicked men who are filled with pride, they will find very clever schemes by which to brazenly exalt themselves. They will do it through subtlety. Right, they will do it through sleight of hand, right, through tricks and gimmicks. But they will exalt themselves under a guise of false humility. Right, they will find a way. Men will find ways to give to themselves some credit, right, a little bit of credit. They will find a way to distinguish themselves from their fellow man that originates in themselves. In our own day, the Armenian understanding of salvation does such a thing. The Armenian understanding of salvation which is almost universally held in the churches today. This is the default position of much of the so-called Christianity that we find, even in the Bible Belt, right? Right here in Texas, in Oklahoma, where I'm from. The Bible Belt, where everyone is a Christian, yet what people believe to be true about salvation is what is called Arminianism, or free will salvation, free will understanding. We, Call them the free willies, right? The free willers. This is what they believe. And what does this disease teach? It is a disease because it has infected the churches. Does it not promote pride in man? It does. Because it teaches, it teaches people that what makes the difference between one man and the other man, right? What distinguishes between the one who accepts the gospel and and the one who rejects the gospel, right? What is it that makes the difference between this man who believes the gospel and this other one who rejects it? They will say, it is the decision of man. It is the free will of man. It is the faith that was produced from the free will decision of man. They say God gives to all mankind the same opportunity. God offers salvation to all. But it is only those who choose to accept it who will receive this salvation. And what is it that makes the difference? At the end of the day, what is the basis for the distinction of those who receive the gift and those who reject the gift? And they have to say it is man. It is man's choice, man's decision, man's faith, man's free will. Right? This is where it comes from. Arminianism teaches men to trust in their own righteousness, to trust in their own free will decision, to trust in their own faith that was produced by their will and it inevitably leads to them treating others with contempt. Because what makes the difference between the one who receives and the one who rejects is that I have the wisdom, I have the understanding, I have the spirituality to receive it and they reject it. Jesus teaches against this. Jesus is trying to establish humility in men. Right? He's trying to teach men not to trust in their own righteousness. Don't trust in anything that comes from you. And never treat others with contempt. But they, the Armenians, are establishing the exact opposite. Right? It is contrary to true faith. To true salvation. It's contrary, and it does not promote the things that God loves. It rather promotes those things that God despises. This is why we cannot hold hands with Him. We cannot say that they are good Christians. We cannot say that we can work with them. How can someone be a good Christian when he promotes those things that are contrary to the teachings of Jesus Christ? And Jesus is dealing with issues of salvation here. Because He says at the end, the one goes home justified and not the other. So he is talking about an issue of salvation. One man is justified. The other man is not. It's not an in-house debate thing. It's not a peripheral, secondary issue. It's not that the one is a 10 out of the 10 and the other one is a 7 out of the 10. Right? This is the difference between true and false religion. This is the difference. Those who approach God, even the true God, even if they claim to be his followers, Even if they claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and yet they approach God and Christ like this Pharisee, they will not be justified. They will not have the salvation of God. There is no salvation, but only delusion, and ultimately they will be rejected and destroyed by God. Jesus, what he's laying out in this passage is the difference between true and false religion. Right. Both in relation to Christianity versus world religions, but also in relation to Christianity versus false Christianity, true Christianity versus false. Right, We have to understand both of these concepts. Yes, there is true religion. There is Christianity, which is true. And there are false religions, like Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, that are false religions. They are false. This is true. But even within the pale of Christianity, there is some Christianity that is true. And there are other forms of Christianity that have so deviated from the Bible that they are Christian in name only. But they're not Christian in truth or in right. They call themselves Christians, but they're not truly Christians because they have rejected the teachings of the Bible. Right? All false religion, right? whether it be Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or if it be a false form of Christianity like Catholicism or Arminianism, all false religions are built upon works. This is what distinguishes true from false. False religions are built upon works. Salvation, blessings, paradise, right? whatever the pinnacle of the religion is. It is what the person does that grants him access to such things. It is his effort, his righteousness, his work, his faith, his free will. Whatever he does, he is the one who gains access to these things by what he has done. At the end of the day, what makes the difference is the man. But true religion, the one found in the Bible, it is always based upon the gift of God. God's gift. What makes the difference is not the man. It is God who makes the difference. It is His grace, His mercy, His gift. It comes from God's sovereign will. False religion is man-centered. True religion is God-centered. In the false, God is a debtor to man. Man presents something to God... And because he presents this to God, now God is indebted to him and God must give to him salvation, blessing, paradise, whatever it is. But this is not the case in the Bible. In true religion, God is not indebted to man. Man is always a debtor to God. We can present nothing to God by which to earn his favor, by which to earn his blessings, by which to earn his salvation. And we'll see this clearly displayed in the tax collector. He's not presenting anything to God by which to commend himself to him. The Pharisee is, but the tax collector is not. He has nothing by which to commend himself to God. In false religion, man can, through his own effort, earn salvation. But in true religion, man is completely unable to offer God anything for salvation, but all of it must be received from start to finish as a gift from God. This is what we must burn into our minds. God must save. Only God can save. Man can do nothing at all. The flesh is of no help at all. Everything is based upon God. It's based upon His word, His compassion, His choice, His grace given to whomever He chooses to give it to. Just as it says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing It is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast It is a gift from God. Everything, right? The grace is a gift. The faith is a gift. Everything is a gift given to us by God. It all comes from Him. Everything needed for salvation has come from God. And He gives it to whomever He pleases. Just as Paul establishes in Romans chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It does not depend on the man. It doesn't depend on the man, his will or his exertion. It depends only on God who has mercy. And he will have mercy to whoever he wants to have mercy. This is the difference that is played out in these two men. The Pharisee thinks it depends on him, his will, his works, what he has done. He presents this to God, and God is a debtor to him who must give to him his blessings. The tax collector on the other hand understands it does not depend upon him. It's not based on his will, his exertion, his free will, anything that he presents to God, but he comes to God as a beggar who is begging God to give him something that he has no right to claim. It is an understanding of mercy, and this is how we must approach God. Look at verse 10. It says two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Here we see two men go to the temple to pray. So again, it's not that one is going to the true temple and the other one is going to a temple of Baal or to some other false temple. No, they're both going to the true temple. And they're also both going to pray. So one's not going to the temple to pray, and the other one's going to the temple to murder people, right? There's no distinction in what they're doing outwardly. They're both going to the true temple, and they're both going to offer prayers to God, which is what they ought to be doing at the temple. Both are going there, so there's no distinction in what they are doing. As far as outward things are concerned, everything is the same. Both are in the right place Both are praying to the right God. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. Now what we'll see here is that's not the issue as well. It's not that God is against Pharisees and for tax collectors. God is against proud Pharisees and for humble tax collectors. But God is also for humble Pharisees, and God would be against proud tax collectors. It's not a distinction in their social class, or their position, or what they have in society. None of this matters. What matters is what's coming from the heart. It is the way that they approach God. But here, in this case, because of what Jesus is instructing him in his own day, the Pharisee is one who is considered to be a religious man, a spiritual man, right? By society, they would have considered him to be a very godly person, one who is close to God. The tax collector, on the other hand, would be considered a notorious sinner, right? A reject, someone who is on the fringes of society. So there's a contrast. In the way that people would view these two men, right? They are on opposite ends of the spectrum, the way that people view them. But what we will see as well is they are on opposite ends, the way God views them as well. But it is a reversal in the contrast. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, a sorcerers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I've asked twice a week, I give tithes of all that I give. The Pharisee offers his prayer to God. But the Pharisee is using his prayer as a way of promoting himself and treating others with contempt. The very thing that Jesus is instructing them not to do is what this Pharisee is doing. His prayer is not a plea to God. It is not a plea to God for grace and mercy. He makes no mention of his sin, no mention of his unworthiness, no mention of how much he needs God. Everything he does, everything he says, is about himself. He's talking about himself. Now, he gives to God a token at the beginning. He says, God, I thank you. He begins with this token by giving God thanks, but then immediately he moves to talking about himself. This is what people will do. They will use religious jargon, right? They dress up their pride, their sin, with religious jargon as a way of disarming people so that people think that they're very spiritual. So he starts with, God, I thank you, but it's just a pretense. He's just doing it to disarm people so that then he can really talk about what he wants to talk about, right? No one can just come out and say, I'm gonna stand up here and tell all of you people, how wonderful I am. How great of a guy I am. Let me tell you, about all the wonderful things that I've done. But if I stand up and say, oh, I, I'm, you know, all glory goes to God. And God, I thank you. And then I go and I begin to rattle off all the things that I've done. That I've done. Then people think, well, oh, he's a very humble man. Right? He's a very spiritual man. This is what this Pharisee is doing. People do this all the time. Right? People will not let their sin come out, especially if it's something that is unacceptable. They will not let it come out in its bare form, but they decorate it. They want to cover it. They put a guise of humility or a guise of love over the top of it, and then they bring it out And it disarms people. Many people are not aware of what is happening. This is what happens all the time. And we must be very careful that we are not doing such things. That we don't use spiritual things as a way of justifying our sin. This is what he does. He covers his pride and self-exaltation with a token of gratitude. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Right? That I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector, right? He highlights how he is different from all these other people. Now, we know that this is not truly the case. He's not truly different than other men. He's convinced himself that he's not like these other men, but in reality, he's no better than the rest of them. He really is not better than other men at all. We know for certain that he's a liar. He's lying in this prayer. He's not being just. He says, I'm not unjust, but in the very prayer, he's not being just because he's not making a just description of himself, nor is he making a just description of the the tax collector. So he's a liar and he is unjust. So this is what he is. All of this then is a show. It is in his own mind that he believes it. He wants others to believe it, but he cannot fool God. This is really the foolishness of such hypocrisy. We might be able to convince people that we're very religious and spiritual and receive praise from men, but we cannot fool God. God is not a dummy. God can see right through all of our nonsense. He can see right into our hearts, and we cannot fool Him. And it's not before men that we will stand on the day of judgment. We will stand before God on the day of judgment, and He will bring all these things to light. So away with all this pretentious religion. Away with this hypocrisy. Be gone with it. Let us be authentic. Let us be true to who we truly are, and reveal those things, because God will reveal them in the day of judgment. Now, how does he convince himself and others of his own righteousness? Well, he talks about external things, his external acts. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting, nor is there anything wrong with tithing. These ought to be a part of our righteousness. We ought to be practicing these things. We ought to fast and we ought to tithe. So the issue here is not fasting and it's not tithing. The issue is that these things are not being done by faith. He's not practicing these things with the right attitude toward God, but he's using them as a way of convincing himself and others of his own righteousness. Right? We ought to tithe by faith. We ought to fast by faith. Right? Fasting because we need God's mercy. Tithing as a token of our gratitude to God for His mercy. This is how a righteous man will practice fasting and tithing. But a wicked man, a self-righteous man, will use these external activities as a way of promoting themselves. As a way of distinguishing themselves from other men. He does it twice a week. He fasts. This is more than the law even commands them to do. He's even better than Moses, even better than what God establishes in his word. He's such a godly man, and he tithes on everything that he gets. Everything that comes across him, he gives a tithe to. This is what he's doing. So he's doing these things as a way of inflaming his pride. And he will present these to God as the basis for why it is that God ought to receive him into his kingdom. The reason God ought to give to him His favor and His blessing, God owes him something. Hey, I'm not like other I've asked. I've God. You owe me Your grace and mercy. You owe me Your blessings, Your salvation, because of who I am. Right. What we have to understand is that a self-righteous hypocrite, even one who is a Christian, who calls himself a Christian, if they are a self-righteous hypocrite, they are really pagans at heart. Right, All religion is really paganism at its root. Right? They use external rituals, external acts of obedience. Right, These things that are meant to be practiced by faith and out of our love to God because of his mercy, what they will do is they use these things as a way of getting God into their debt so that God owes them something and then of commending themselves to others. Right? They do these things. So that God has to return the favor, right? The the pagan brings food to the temple. He brings food to the idol. He feeds the idol. And then the idol sends rain to fall upon his cross, right? He scratches the idol's back. And then the idol scratches his back. And this is what the Pharisee is doing. God, I'm doing this for you. So then you need to do something for me. You need to repay me. This is what he's doing, right? All three of his actions, prayer, fasting, and tithing, are means to promote himself, not the glory of God. This is what he's doing. So a wicked man will convince himself that he is a righteous man by doing outward religious activities, right? Because a wicked man can pray, can he not? A wicked man can fast, a wicked man can tithe. Anyone can do these things, but they cannot do it out of love for God. That's the difference. He cannot do it by faith. He cannot do it out of love of his neighbor. He can only do it for his own evil desires for himself. Right? Oprah Winfrey gives more money than all of us combined. Right? She gives more than to charitable things than all of us. But it doesn't commend her to God because she's not doing it by faith. She's not doing it out of love for God. It is sinful and selfish, right? Even though it's better than burning down their houses, but it does not in any way commend her to God. This is what they do. When he trusts in himself, he's failing to love God, to give God his proper place. And when he treats his neighbor with contempt, he's failing to love his neighbor. This is why his religion is a farce. He's condemned. He's a hypocrite. He's using religious activities, fasting and tithing, to break the two greatest commandments. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But in his religious activities, he's breaking both of these commandments. This is why he stands condemned. And he's not judging himself rightly. Right? He finds others. Right, This is what we will do. We can't do this. We can't do this. We cannot go out and find other people who are worse than us. And then convince ourselves that we're righteous because we're better than other people. This is what the Pharisee is doing. He's looking around and he sees the tax collector. I'm glad that I'm not like that man. I'm better than you. And therefore that makes me a righteous man. Right? Is, this, is this all that is needed? we just need to find someone that we're better than? And then that all of a sudden makes us righteous and approved by God? But this is not the case. It's not what the Bible teaches. This is not how we establish righteousness. Righteousness that is not that is established based on works is not about being better than other people. It's about keeping the law of God perfect. But this Pharisee is not doing that. We've already seen that he's a liar. Right? Because the scripture is in Galatians 3.10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Right. So he's looking at others, convincing himself that he's righteous because he's better than other men. But this is not the standard by which he needs to judge himself. If he wants to be righteous based upon words, then he needs to do everything written in the book of the law. But he's not doing that. He's not doing that, but that's not what he's looking at. So this is the Pharisee, the self-righteous hypocrite. Now look at the tax collector, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? The tax collector has a far different approach to God. His prayer is not an exercise in self-promotion, but rather is self-loathing. He is humiliated because of who he is. Right? And not a false humility that's done for show, but a true humility before God. He's not doing this for other people. He stands by himself. He stands far off. He won't even look up to heaven He's so humble, he has such a comprehension of his own unworthiness that he doesn't even think it right for him to lift his sinful eyes even to heaven. He won't even look up to heaven is how unworthy he sees himself. But instead, he beats his breast. This is a man in anguish because he is fully aware of what he is. He knows he is a wretched sinner. He knows he deserves the wrath of God. He knows that he has nothing by which to commend himself to God. There's no reason for God to give him his grace and mercy, for God to bestow love upon this man. He knows that all that he deserves is the wrath and condemnation of God. He knows that there's nothing, nothing to present to God, no bargaining chips. He is a helpless, worthless, wretched sinner. This is how he views himself. Now, people will say, well, What about our self-esteem, right? We don't need to feel good about ourselves. We need to build people up. No one wants to come to church and feel bad about themselves. People want to feel good about themselves. No, this is what we need to do. This is how we need to feel about ourselves. But we have nothing good to feel about ourselves. What is there in us that is any good? Why wouldn't we feel good about sin? There's nothing by which we ought to have esteem for ourselves. No, we ought to loathe ourselves hate ourselves. Jesus even says that we must hate ourselves to be his disciple, right? And then we will have the mercy and grace of God. And then Christ will lift us up, right? That is better than exalting ourselves and lifting ourselves up. So all this nonsense that you hear today about self-esteem, take it, throw it out the window. It's no good. It's contrary to what is found in the Bible. This tax collector, he doesn't have any self-esteem. He feels very bad about who he is. He has self-loathing instead. There's no shed of evidence in the tax collector that he is a proud being or that he thinks God owes him anything. Right? He doesn't say, Yes, God, I-, I know I'm a sinner, but you know, I'm a little bit better than other people. At least I'm not like him. So please give me your grace and mercy. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say to God, God, I don't have much to offer, but I do have a little bit. I have a little bit of goodness. I have this little bitty small island of free will that's left in my heart, and I don't have much to offer, but what I do, I present to you, and so please give me your mercy. No, none of this. He makes no mention of any goodness in himself, anything that he's done, nor does he talk about any other person. He's not talking about anyone else. He's consumed with thoughts of God's holiness and of his own sinfulness. He is so aware of his own wretchedness, he can't think about anyone else. No one can be as guilty of a sinner as he is when we are convinced of our own sinfulness. This is the conclusion that we will come to. We will quit making all of these comparisons and quit comparing ourselves to other people because when we become aware of who we are, see, I I don't know all the sins that you commit, but I know what my heart is like. I know what my mind is like. I know the sins that I have committed. And I know that he's me low before God. This is all he's concerned with. Just his own sin. And his desperate need for God's mercy. And that is what his prayer is. His prayer is a cry. It is a desperate cry for mercy. He's begging God. He's coming to God as a beggar. This is why the proud man will never have eternal life. A proud man, he's too proud to beg. He's not going to beg. He's not going to get on his knees. This is why the Pharisees, for the most part, were left out of the kingdom of God. Because in order for them to have salvation, they had to get in line with everyone else. With the tax collectors, with the adulterers, right? with all the other sinners, all the common people. There was nothing that gave them a fast track to God. They had to line up with all the rest of the sinners and come as beggars. They said, we will not beg for salvation. Doesn't God know who we are? Jesus, don't you know who we are? John the Baptist, don't you know who we are? You ought to be chumming up with us. right? We can really benefit you. We can help you. But we're not going to come like these other sinners. But no, this is how we must come to God. As beggars. Asking, begging God for God to be merciful to us because we are sinners. And again, this is a cry for help. It's not a demand for help. He's not demanding, God, you must do this for me. God, you owe this to me. We cannot come to God in that way. We are not entitled. We can't come with entitlements to God. Yes, it may work in the American government, but it doesn't work when it comes to God. We are entitled to nothing when it comes to God. We have nothing, so we must come as beggars. We can't earn it. We can't demand it. All we can do is plead, beg, cry out, ask God to give us these things. This is the proper approach to God. No arrogance, no pride, no self-righteousness, no self-reliance, no self-promotion, but humbly as a worthless sinner in desperate need of God's mercy that God must give to us. This is how we ought to pray to God every day. We ought to pray to God in this way. All of our prayers must be rooted in this understanding that we are undeserving, worthless sinners, and that God's mercy comes down to us as a gift of grace given by Him. So we ask God as humble, undeserving sinners. And then, when God grants to us His mercy, and when God gives us His mercy, it does not leave us the same that we were. The tax collector went home different that day. The Pharisee went home the same. The tax collector, he went home justified. God gave to him mercy, and the mercy that God gave to him changed him. It did something to him. It makes him a different man. right? When God gives us his mercy, it is a great benefit that God gives to us. It produces in us a change of heart that leads to a change of life. When we receive the mercy of God, we begin to walk in righteousness. We begin to produce good works. But because the righteousness and the good works are the result of the gift of God, it will never lead us to boasting. It won't lead us to say, you know, we're really making some progress here. I'm really something. Look at me. You know, I'm really making some headway in the Christian life. It will never lead to that because we know that on our own we would be worthless sinners. We would still be on the dumb pile. But now it is God who has done this in us. God is the one who has brought about this change. So it will lead to more gratitude to God and more reflecting on our own simpleness. How unworthy we are to be what we are today, what God has done for us. Right, in this way, the Pharisee, in a sense, is right. He says he thinks God that he's not like other men. Now that's not true of him, but this is true of the righteous. The righteous are not like other men. Those who have been saved by grace through faith, they have become the righteous, the redeemed. Because of God's grace, We are not like other men. Paul says such in Ephesians chapter 2. He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you're not dead in them anymore. You've been changed. Now you are alive. We are not like the wicked. We're no longer dead like they are. The righteous are not like other men. At least we better not be. We don't want to go to the places that they go. We don't want to participate in the sins that they participate in. We don't desire the things that this world desires. Now, we're not perfect, but we are different. There is a distinction. God has changed our desires, and our life has been changed, and we are now hidden in Christ. There is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. But the reason the righteous are not like other men is not because of something that originated in them. The change, the distinction, has as its foundation the undeserved mercy of God. He's the one that has brought about the change. They did not change themselves. So then the change, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, will never lead to the righteous boasting in themselves. It will never lead them to be proud, but instead will always lead to praise and thanksgiving to God. Why would God do this for me? Why would God give me His mercy and not give it to others. Why would God give me His salvation when He has not given it to all? Because I know that I'm no better than Him. I was just as dead as they were. As a matter of fact, I was even worse than them. And yet God has saved me. The gifts of grace never lead to boasting, but rather to a recognition of our own unworthiness and to thanksgiving to God. God's Lord, God is the one who gets the Lord. Just as in Luke chapter 1 verse 42, this is what happened with Elizabeth, a righteous woman, right the mother of John the Baptist. In Luke 1:42, she says this: "She says to Mary, "Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me?" Elizabeth recognized that she was receiving a unique gift from God, a unique blessing from the Lord. She was in the presence of the mother of the Lord with the Lord in her uh, womb. But instead of that leading her to arrogance, to pride, to thinking that she's something when she's really nothing, right? It doesn't lead to that at all. Instead, it leads her to say that she's unworthy for this. Why would God do this for me? So it doesn't lead her to conceit. She doesn't say, man, I must really be special. God must love me above everyone else because he's given this great blessing to me. I must be, It must be because I'm so much more righteous than everyone else that God has done this for me. No, she doesn't say that at all. She praises God for the blessing, and then she reflects upon her own unworthiness. Why has it been given to me? Why would God give this to me and not give it to others? This is what she says. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. What do you have that you have not received? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That is a verse that would be good for all of us to memorize. What do you have that you have not received? Everything we have, every good thing that we have, has come to us as a gift from God. So if it is a gift given to us by God, why are you boasting as if you haven't received it why are you boasting as if you produce this in yourself the conclusion is don't boast god will not share his glory with another he keeps it for himself whatever progress we make in the christian life it is always a result of the gift of god it should never lead to pride it should never lead to conceit to self-exaltation it should never lead to contempt of others but should always lead to praise to God in a confession of our own unworthiness. Verse 14. Here's a conclusion. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector is commended by Jesus. He is set before us as the example of one who properly approached God and who received the blessing. He is the one who went home justified. He received mercy. He received salvation. While the self-righteous hypocrite, the Pharisee, was rejected by God. God had no regard for his prayer. Why? Why did this happen? Here's the principle that Jesus gives. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who exalts himself in this life will be humbled in the life to come. But the one who humbles himself in this life will be exalted in the life to come. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The same principle there, the apostle is teaching. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, what's the conclusion? What should any rational, sane person draw from this? Therefore, he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. If God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, then humble yourself before God so that he can exalt you at the proper time. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Thus says the one who was high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble, and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. This is not just a New Testament concept. This is a biblical concept. From the beginning of time to the end of time, God opposes the proud. He gives grace only to the humble. And one of the evidences that one is a humble man, It's what it says in 66 Isaiah 66-2, is that he trembles at my word. The one who has come to a proper understanding of his sin, right? first we understand our sinfulness, and then as we come to understand our sinfulness, we also tremble at the word of God. These graces come together. Right, The man who is humble, who understands that he is a sinner before God, why is he going to trust anything that comes from his own mind? Why is he going to trust any of his own wisdom, any of his own understanding? Right? If the tax collector realizes that he is an undeserving sinner, then why would he trust anything that is produced in himself? So where is he going to go? Where will he go for true wisdom? Where will he go for understanding He goes to the Word of God. This is why he trembles before the Word of God, because he knows that in the Word of God is contained the very wisdom of God, the very righteousness of God. And this is what we must do as well. We must humble ourselves. And one of the ways that we continually show humility in the Christian life is, of course, by a continual understanding of our sinfulness, but also by our submission to the word of Christ. We must submit to what is in the Bible. Every doctrine taught in the Bible, we must believe. Every commandment that is taught in the Bible, we must obey. We cannot reject anything that is found in the Bible. We cannot put out our own wisdom as being superior to the wisdom of God. It is not arrogant, it is not proud to believe what the Bible says. It's humble to believe what the Bible says. Nor is it arrogant and proud to expect other people who claim to be Christians to believe what the Bible says. We must adhere to the true doctrines of the Bible, but we must also insist that others adhere to the true doctrines of the Bible as well. This is not pride. People will say it's pride. It's not pride. This is actually humility. Because we are submitting our minds, our theology, our practices to the Word of God. We are rejecting our own human wisdom and receiving the wisdom that comes from above. We never receive a teaching because it comes from a man. We don't receive it because of the authority of any man. That would be arrogance. That would be pride. If I insisted that you believe the doctrines of the Bible, If I insisted that, say you, I say you have to believe in the doctrines called Calvinism because I say so. And and because of my authority, you must believe these things. That would be pride. That would be presumption. But if I say that these doctrines are true doctrines that are found in the Bible, and that I insist that you must believe them because they are consistent with what is taught in the Scriptures, that is not pride. That is humility. However, what will take place and what will happen is what is in reality humility and submission to God's authority. The naysayers and critics will say that this is hideous pride and that this is unloving. It's a lack of charity. We need to show charity and love and understanding to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I say this because you must be prepared for this. This body, this this church, must be prepared for this, because it is just a matter of time. One, you're going to find out, Ish is a pretty hard-headed guy. He's pretty narrow-minded when it comes to the Bible. But he ought to be narrow-minded, and he ought to be hard-headed, and that's not something that is a a sin. It's not a vice. The Bible teaches us that it is a hard and narrow way that leads to life, and that there are few who find it. That we must confess and believe all of the words of Jesus Christ. But it's just a matter of time, sooner or later, someone will come into the church. They'll come and say, oh, this is so great. This is wonderful. I'm reformed. Right? I believe these doctrines. I'm here to all these things as well. I love all the doctrines that you love. But they hold to these doctrines as preferences, not as convictions. Right? There's a difference between a conviction and a preference. A conviction is that this is true. It's true for me, but it's not just true for me. It's true for everyone because it has as its authority God himself. Everyone must believe this. This is a conviction. This is how we hold these doctrines to be. A preference is that it's true for me. I like this. I wish that you like it as well. I hope that you will like it. But if you don't, that's okay. It's no big deal. We can all agree to disagree, and we can all be good, faithful Christians, good, faithful interpreters of the Bible, even if we believe this or if we reject it. Right? Those who hold these doctrines as preferences will not tolerate those who hold them as conventions. We've learned this a hard way. We've learned this through many difficulties because this is what has happened in our church in Oklahoma. As me and Ish have worked together, there have been those who come in, and initially they say, oh, this is great, this is wonderful, we love it. But then over time, they figure out what it is that we're teaching, and they say, you are evil. You're, You're evil people. We've got to get out of here. These guys, they're all crazy, they're gross. And they do this under the guise of love, under a guise of charity. Under a guise of open-mindedness, of gentleness, of understanding, of maturity, right? They will come in, and when they figure out that you hold to these things as conventions, they will walk away, and they will say that you are full of awful pride. You're very unloving people, very harsh, mean-spirited, very, very narrow-minded. But in reality, they are the ones who are full of awful pride. They are the ones who are very unloving, unloved, both towards God and toward men. For they teach that one can reject the true doctrines of the Bible and still be a good, faithful Christian. But on what basis do they teach this principle? On what basis, on whose authority do they establish such things? What scripture do they cite in order to plot this course of action? Where does the Bible teach? That some doctrines must be believed and other doctrines are optional. I know of no place. Yeah, I can't think of any. Ish knows the Bible better than anyone I've ever met. Do you know of any place where those seek their No, they're not anywhere. They're not found in the Bible. But they know it's true. They know without any doubt, with complete certainty, that this is true. And they are 100% convinced that this is the way of love. But on whose authority does this conviction reside? If it's not found in the Bible, where does it come from? It comes from their own wisdom. It seems right to them. It seems loving to them. It seems very gracious to them. It seems like this is the best way forward to them. It comes from them because they say so, not because God said it, but because they have said it. This is the very definition of what it means to be a proud and uh, arrogant person. And this is why we must reject this way of thinking. Anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God must be destroyed. When human wisdom parades itself as equal or superior to the wisdom of God, we must attack it, we must expose it, and we must destroy it. And this is the loving, kind, humble thing to do. Because this is what the Bible teaches. Proverbs 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It seems right, but it ends in death. Is it loving for me to let him continue in the way of death and not to warn him? No, we must warn him. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. We must be humble before God. That means recognizing our own sinfulness, but also submitting to the wisdom of God. Family in the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. And Lord, we do ask Lord, that you would give to us a heart that, like this tax collector. Lord, an understanding of our own sinfulness, Lord, of how unworthy we are. Lord, that we deserve nothing from you. Lord, all that we have earned is your wrath. Lord, your hatred. Lord, your condemnation. These are the things that we've earned, Lord, by our works. Because all of our righteous deeds, Lord, they are as filthy rags before you. Lord, we have nothing by which to commend ourselves to you. Lord, help us to realize this every day. Lord, that every day we depend upon your grace and your mercy. Lord, that come to us only as gifts, Lord, that you give. And Lord, we pray that you would bestow these gifts upon us. Lord, pour out your grace and mercy to us today. Lord, give to us forgiveness of sins. Lord, knowing that we have sinned against you. Lord, forgive us, please. Lord, also give us the grace and mercy we need to be obedient to you. Lord, we want to be righteous. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. Lord, we don't want to walk in sin. But Lord, we are helpless. We have no strength. Lord, we have no power. Lord, only you can do this. Only you can give us the strength. So Father, we pray that you do so. Lord, that you give us a, a double portion of your spirit. Lord, that we might be faithful to you in all things. Lord, keep us from ever being arrogant and proud. Lord, like the Pharisees. Who exalted himself, Lord? Help us to see that to those who do such things, Lord, they may have a temporary exaltation, Lord. But in the end, they will have eternal humiliation. Lord, may we live that day of judgment, Lord, knowing that the way of humility is the proper way. And Lord, may we be humble before you every day. Lord, guard us from pride, from self righteousness, from self exaltation, Lord remove these things far from us so that we might walk humbly before you and we ask these things in the name of christ Amen.